Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Need Some Introduction. In today's episode, I'll be breaking down the third episode of Barry, season four, the final season of Barry on HBO, an episode called You're Charming, all lowercase, as usual, with this show. Also, I'll be getting Sona's reaction to this week's most recent episode of Succession. If you're only here for the Barry recap, or if you're only here for the Succession conversation and want to stay unspoiled on the other conversation, do check the show notes so you know where to jump in the episode. But before we get to that, just some news and a couple of reviews, spoiler free. On the news front, just the announcement today, I'm publishing this on Wednesday, that Black Mirror, the excellent, usually, Netflix now, originally BBC, now Netflix, sci-fi series from Charlie Brooker is coming back in June. And we will definitely be covering that here in the show. We did need some more shows to cover in June. So luckily we do have some new content. I do love the very prescient and dark stories that we've experienced through that series. And beyond covering these new episodes, I will probably be breaking down my favorite episodes from the previous seasons as well. So look forward to that. And there's quite a lot of science fiction shows that I'll be covering here in the summertime. I guess we've just been seeing a lot of sci-fi here in general, but there are many shows that we'll be covering here. Silo, Mrs. Davis, which is currently airing, which I'll be reviewing shortly. The new Marvel Secret Invasion series, along with now Black Mirror, and I'm I'm sure many others as well. So we can look forward to that in the future. Make sure you subscribe if you're watching Succession or Barry or Yellow Jackets, which we're covering currently, or we'll be watching any of the shows I just mentioned in the future. Okay, before I get into the Barry Breakdown, just a couple of reviews of shows that I have been watching and I find very interesting, but perhaps difficult to recommend. Number one, a show that I will probably watch through, Peacock's Damon Lindelof series, Mrs. Davis. Of course, the headlines are full of stories about AI, and fortuitously, this season, this series comes out just as the world is suddenly fascinated and terrified with all these new AI tools that are about to emerge, which I honestly believe will be transformational to society. So I was very much looking forward to Lindelof's exploration of these themes, especially in this moment. And my general reaction is that I am really not enjoying this series that much. On the one hand, I find the tone to be a little bit goofy, too goofy by my standards. And I also feel that they they raise some really fascinating topics here in the series, but they go relatively unexplored. So the comedy is kind of missing for me. Once again, maybe my own expectations of what I was hoping to see here. And the themes that are raised are underexplored. And there's just too much. There's this idea in storytelling, the idea that you want to have one impossibility, one ridiculous thing should happen in the story, and that should be foundational. So if you kind of come forward and you tell the audience, this is the crazy idea at the center of my story, they'll accept that because that's why they showed up. Now, if you lay another crazy idea on top of that, you start to lose the audience. The problem I think I have with Mrs. Davis is that this is a show that episode to episode keeps layering more ridiculous twists, one on top of the other, on top of the other. And you'll get a feel for this immediately in the very first episode. You have someone who is lost on the desert island. And the way that they build this rocket to be discovered is absolutely preposterous. Now, that alone could be just a funny gag, like how expertly they can make this very technical firework explosion. But then everything is so heightened beyond that, that it just seems too great. That's my personal opinion. Now, I'm spending a lot of time talking about this firework display at the very beginning of the show, but it is indicative of the fact that they start at an 11 and then they just keep going and going and going. And it's almost like that idea of improv where it's the yes and. So someone makes an outlandish proposal, you yes and, then you go to another level and another level. And it really feels like that is the mission statement for this series. Now, everything I'm describing, this is not a train wreck where the creators of the show have no idea what they're doing. This is their tone. This is their choice to go attack this topic in this incredibly heightened, cartoonish, literally cartoonish manner. 
It is like a live action cartoon. And that's the tone at which this is being done. That's my problem with it. I don't mind cartoonish humor. I'm, we're actually going to talk about Barry in this particular episode, a show that wallows in cartoonish tone, but the characters are still grounded in some way and everything, the motivations of the characters, the performance of the actors, the tone of the show itself, the action sequences are all slapstick in every possible way. And it just isn't gelling for me. That's a very negative review, right? At that point. All that being said, I am still curious about what the show is trying to lay out here. But I would say at this moment, I wouldn't recommend this to you. I'm so on the fence about it. If you want to sample the first episode, you do not have to be a Peacock subscriber to see the first episode of the show. It's free to everybody. So if you want to sample this, give it a try. This is the tone of the show in episode one. You have this cartoonish violence. You have this mythology of the Knights Templar already introduced at the beginning of the episode. And you're thinking, the Knights Templar, isn't this an AI show? There is this all-knowing AI as well, who sends our lead protagonist, this nun, on a mission to locate the Holy Grail. That's the mission that the AI sends her on. And it gets more complex than that. If you do sample all four episodes, you find out that we have the invocation of faith itself, faith in technology versus faith in religion. Any of you who've gone to Catholic school or have just even watched The Sound of Music, you know that nuns are called the brides of Jesus. They swear themselves to be loyal to Jesus. And that is literalized in this show in ways that are probably blasphemous, by the way. So this is quite a mixture of tones and ideas. It is so overstuffed. And honestly, when I first started watching Lindelof, one of Lindelof's most recent projects, The Watchmen Reimagination on HBO, I felt also like that was a little overstuffed dealing with so many different complex issues. But that show really did gel in the end, really did deal with some of these very, very deep issues in very interesting and provocative ways. So I do hope that maybe in the back half of these episodes, I can give you a more enthusiastic recommendation for this. At this particular moment, I'm very much on the fence. Some of these ideas do get my wheels spinning, but even now halfway through the season, I am mostly irritated by the tone of the show and just occasionally will jibe with the humor or with some of these big thoughts it has. There's just so much that is just continuously being introduced episode to episode that they can't even really grapple with these ideas that they've already raised. So perhaps in the back half, this starts to coalesce. I will keep you posted because I will be watching and I'll take that bullet <laughs> for you all if it turns out to be bad. Okay, less than investment of time, but also overstuffed with ideas and too much plotting is the new adaptation of Dead Ringers, which is available on Amazon Prime. This one is available to watch all at once. And except for maybe the last two episodes or so, the episodes are short enough where this could be a pretty quick binge this show has a truly excellent pilot episode, which is short, and maybe that has a lot to do with it, and introduces some really pressing and important ideas about how childbirth is still a dangerous and overlooked practice in medicine, even though it is one of the absolute most common procedures in the world. It is a natural process that medicine has not been able to refine or improve. If anything, it's made it more dangerous for these women over time. And this re-adaptation of the David Cronenberg film, created by Alice Birch, who is a very talented writer, having written the very successful Normal People adaptation for Hulu, and last year's excellent The Wonder for Netflix, just to name two of the many projects she's been involved with, and maybe to the fact that she wrote that pilot episode, and it is so excellent, introducing all these dense topics about childbirth, and also using a truly excellent film, the David Cronenberg film from 1987, I believe, 88, which is available for free to stream on Tubi if you want to catch up on that one. And a truly incredible central performance by Jeremy Irons playing the twin brothers. In that case, twin brother gynecologists. This has been revamped for this contemporary time, 35 years later, shockingly, 35 years later. And where that film, although it's truly excellent, is also probably misogynistic, this film gender flips the sisters. Not to say that they can't be misogynistic, by the way. 
and one of the twins probably more so than the other. But by having this central female focus on the topic, it allows this to become more about the way that childbirth is turned into a product. Whether you can successfully birth a child or have someone birth one for you, becoming an elite status symbol to have a successful childbirth even. It's just crazy and bizarre irony. And it is explored here, just one of the things that is explored here within the series. And that first episode is so powerful, so intriguing. And I would recommend this series, although I think it is very uneven. It almost feels like an anthology. They have these running through line of the characters of these two sisters in this symbiotic, toxic relationship, which is their greatest strength and simultaneously their Achilles heel. And despite how off the mark so many of these episodes are, I would still recommend it. As a whole season of show, it doesn't really work. And yet it somehow sets up another season of a show that I can't imagine wanting to watch the next season of this. It just seems unnecessary and bizarre that this would be a continuing story. Then why am I still recommending it? Because episode to episode, individual moments are incredibly powerful. And almost if you just sample this show, I binged it, probably the wrong way to watch it. You could almost watch these disconnected, give yourself some space in between. Each one of them raises really fascinating topics, has incredibly good performances, especially from Rachel Weisz, an incredible dual performance there, playing both sisters. But also Jennifer Ely and Poppy Lou, just to name two more great performances here in the show. So all that makes it worth watching. The reason I'm so hesitant to give it a full-throated recommendation is the fact that the show just keeps adding new things in there. There is a science fiction element to this that goes nowhere. Once again, maybe would pay off in another season, but why introduce it at this early stage in the show, especially since it has no real payoff within the context of these six episodes? It really just feels overstuffed and needed to be streamlined. I think back on the original film, Dead Ringers, the focus of that is just about this relationship between these two men, these brothers. They really complete a whole person in some ways, even explicitly in the film, they express that idea. And that is suddenly intruded upon by a relationship with this actress. That is what this series is about. The relationship with the actress here is not truly as focused, or maybe if it's intended to be, they don't give this actress enough time, enough space to become that interloper. This is all to say that this just feels extremely unfocused beyond the relationship between the sisters, which is so strong and the characters are so well-defined. And once again, Alice Birch writing episode one and episode six, the first and last episodes. I don't even think that last episode is that strong, but it really does feel a true bookend to what is introduced in that first episode. Whereas a lot of the episodes in between, which have other writers and directors, keep introducing other topics. There is some satire of the upper class, especially in episode two, which is a very entertaining episode and yet feels disconnected from the rest of the show. So yes, this is a very, very confusing tonally and yet full of really memorable performances and moments. So a recommendation with trepidations. I would even say everyone should pretty much watch the first episode <laughs> with one caveat. I believe they have actual childbirths. I believe these are actual childbirths in that first episode. If you are squeamish about seeing that, there's also some surgeries, which are obviously, to my eye anyway, obviously special effects or practical effects. The actual childbirths are a little more traumatic to watch, I believe, for me anyway. So <laughs> your mileage may vary on all of this, of course. We have this writer strikes coming up. I was anticipating that many of these secondary streaming services are probably going to have to shut her down given the amount of money they're bleeding. Within the next year or two, the writer's strike without content piping through if the writer's strike actually occurs is only going to accelerate that process because secondary streaming services like Peacock, for example, minus the new content will really struggle to keep their lights on. So this may be the final moment where we can have shows like Mrs. Davis, where we can have shows like Dead Ringers, where it's something quirky, it's something very personal from the show creators. So I appreciate the fact that we live in the moment where these things can exist. But in the case of both of these series, I think that somebody should have looked at those scripts, should have looked at those ideas and said, you know what? You got to neaten this up a little bit. You got to tighten this up a little bit. 
You got some good ideas here. You got some great parts. Let's make this a little tighter. And in both cases, I think these series, very different in tone and ambition, nonetheless needed to have a little bit more editing. And this is the double-edged sword of giving these showrunners carte blanche to do whatever they want to do. You get something that is very experimental that never could have occurred. Thank you very much. I appreciate having that opportunity to see it. But maybe a stronger hand could have made all of this a little more successful. So two confused recommendations for me. Sample episodes one of both of those series and see if they work for you. Okay, Barry season four, episode three, You're Charming. As the episode opens, we see the first sand delivery arriving at the warehouse where Cristobal and Hank have set up their operations. Couple of points here. I love how this opens this video game-like scene where the camera seems to be clamped onto the truck as the truck is moving down the street and of course gyrating and this armed security guard riding atop the truck, not sure why you need to be armed to transport the sand, is jostled by the movement of the truck. And it's just this very surreal image. It's just an intriguing way to photograph the scene. It looks like it's artificial, like it might be a special effect even. So just very interesting that this is the decision that's being made by Bill Hader directing once again this episode. He seems to always be thinking in every scene, how can he make this a scene you haven't seen before, not a boring scene. Second point here, that they're dumping the sand out once they arrive at the warehouse and everybody's celebrating. <laughs> not sure I would want to dump the sand out. <laughs> seems to be like you would not just dump this in the middle of the parking lot. Barry and Cristobal are happy witnessing this happen. Hank notices someone is there. It's Toro, the hitman they've hired to take out Barry. Played by Guillermo del Toro, the Academy Award-winning director of this year's Pinocchio, Best Animated Film, also Best Film and Best Director for The Shape of Water, some four or five years back now. And before that, I believe Best Foreign Language Film for Pan's Labyrinth. And I do not believe he has ever acted before. They just cast him as Toro. And he tells them the plan to kill Barry. He has these two hitmen that are going to infiltrate the prison. They also happen to be podcasters, fellow podcasters. Apparently, they rate and review gadgets, but stupid gadgets that people buy that never work, including one, a jacket that will make s'mores in your pocket while you walk around. I like the fact that Toro responds that it does work. <laughs> Apparently, he's bought one of these, got suckered into buying one of these s'more jackets. Christopher asks, aren't you worried that these famous podcasters will be discovered? But of course, fellow listeners, we all know you listen to a podcast. You don't know what these people look like unless you click on the link, maybe to their social media. But as Hank mentions, no one's going to stop you listening. You're driving, you're busy. You're not going to go click on the links. You don't click on the links to see what the products look like or what the hosts look like. Toro's a little annoyed with this. Apparently he's heard this before. Another very funny sequence, Gene and his agent, Tom, played by Fred Melamed here, meet with the DA. I had to speculate this character was actually the chief detective or something, but actually the DA, DA Buckner. He informs Gene that Barry's working with the feds, but he should be okay as long as Gene keeps his mouth shut and doesn't talk about the case. The FBI is cutting a deal with Barry. He's informing on some big crime figures. Apparently he's very valuable to them. Sir, if he goes free... He is going to come and kill me. Well, let's not get ahead of ourselves, okay? I'm sure you've got some, some big protocols in place to protect your witnesses, right? We have some, but if a defendant is willing and determined, it can be hard. But that's usually ex-military, so I'm not too worried. Barry is ex-military. Oh. Do you own a gun, Mr. Cousineau? He does own a prop gun, which he was given by Rip Torn. If Rip Torn gave it to you, it probably fires real bullets. Mm -hmm. That's good. You know what? I'm just going to go into hiding. They always find you. I've had many cases like this, but I can't talk about them. Because they're classified? No. They're really disturbing, and I just don't like thinking about them. We're in a good position here. Your story and the facts line up. There's nothing they have to cloud the case and set them free. We've controlled the information. So just continue to stick to the facts. And when you're outside this office, keep your mouth shut. But of course, Gene has not kept his mouth shut. He just gave a one-man show to a journalist that's about to write all of this up in Vanity Fair magazine. I also love this idea that I've seen this in the past. I don't want to think about it. <laughs> this always gone so badly. 
Tom crashes the car once Gene confesses that having given that one-man show to the journalist, I like Gene's exasperation with himself also. When asked what is wrong with him, he says, I don't know. We see Barry is truly cooperating with the FBI here. Very funny that they have the board up with all the different folks who he can turn in. And pretty much everybody's exed out on the board, except for Hank, Cristobal, and Fuchs, who, of course, is currently in prison. What an incredibly fascinating character that Barry is, by the way. He really sees these people that he's literally turning in at this moment as his buddies. He talks about how sweet it is that Hank and Cristobal found each other in all this, and yet will threaten to kill them later in the episode. Lon, the journalist, goes to visit Barry in prison. Barry's furious that Gene is telling his story. Meanwhile, following up on last week's offer from Gene to run an acting class, Sally is indeed in front of the class, seems very comfortable here. She at first is concerned that everyone just showed up because she's that person who went viral for freaking out on social media. But interestingly, everyone in the class is very forgiving of her. As a matter of fact, they all say she had a very honest reaction and it's understandable, but things go wrong when she interestingly play acts at being Jean. She calls out a pretty young woman from the audience, just as Jean did to her. Your whole entire life, everyone said, you look good. You have a nice body. You have a nice face. You're charming. You just got away with that. Now you need to actually act. You need to dig deep. And there is a legitimate anger in her attack on this girl. As we also saw, Jean on stage was pretending that I'm just coaching you. I'm just your teacher. And yet there seemed to be this simmering resentment under his facade for having been this failed actor, for him having to be a teacher now and never having been the success he thought he should have been. And he lashes out at his students and then acts like, oh no, it's okay. It's just my teaching technique. This is all very interesting because you see how it does work in getting this performance from this actress and simultaneously how the audience who accepted the fact that Sally was this monster in that sincere reaction in the elevator, find her to be abusive here to this actress in this particular moment. So maybe something thematically going on here in the season where people are pretending or perhaps playing out the dynamics that they've experienced from a different perspective. So whereas Sally was verbally humiliated and used in some ways by Jean, she is now playing that role with this new actress. Lon, this poor journalist, his next stop in confirming Gene's story is to go and visit Jim Moss. Jim Moss takes him to the garage, just as Gene recommended last week. Meanwhile, Fuchs is all alone. He's lost his buddy. He's being ratted out by Barry. Once again, another role reversal here. <laughs> I like how he's mocked by the other inmates. They call him Big Bird <laughs> instead of the Raven. What else do they call him? Fish tits? <laughs> um, baby shoes? Is it baby shoes as well? Something like that. Fuchs still has this hidden burner is in communication with Hank. Can't take this humiliation anymore. Hank says, don't worry. They have somebody on the case. Barry won't be a problem anymore. After Hank gets off the phone, he gets an unwelcome visit from Batir, who is alive, and warns him that the Chechens are coming to run LA again, and he either works with them, or he and all his men, this whole new crew, will be wiped out. We do get to see the real Barry, perhaps. This childish internal monologue that he has going this season. He's always the victim. He does so much for everybody else. No one does anything for him. He's furious about the whole Gene betrayal. At the moment, he's betraying Fuchs. Tom and Gene are looking for Lon. They eventually do trace him back to Jim Moss's house, but the whole sequence of events is pretty hilarious. They break into Lon's house. Tom decides to get a snack or something rather than focusing on the search. Lon's wife shows up and doesn't seem to be disturbed, that disturbed at least, by having these strangers in her house and mentions, oh yeah, he's uh, going to go interview some father. Of course, Gene right away knows he's talking about Jim. When he shows up at Jim's house, he's hosing out the trunk and I was like, wow, is he killed Lon because he's writing this story? No, somehow he has just broken his brain. He can only speak in German now <laughs> and uh, I assume has forgotten about writing this article completely. Poor Sally has lost her entire audience except for this girl that she humiliated on stage. She really did get a role, as Sally had speculated, and she really does need someone to help her get to that point 
where she can give this performance, this confrontation from Sally has been the only thing that has gotten a a reaction out of her. So she is committed to this acting technique, (laughs) although she's lost the rest of the audience. Interesting to think about what this is representing here. Is Sally yelling at this younger version of herself? Also, why does Jean get away with this where Sally does not? Is it just because now we're in a different generation where these younger generation of folks would just will not tolerate that? They did not grow up in a culture where that was acceptable. Or maybe it's the fact that Gene, because he's given that speech so many times, that it is obviously a performance, whereas Sally, and it does seem to be the case, is honestly very, very upset and purely emotional in that moment. Or maybe a combination of all of those. Barry calls Hank. He needs Hank to kill Kusanau. He's been talking, but Hank says no. And once again, we see the ugly side of Barry. It's like, it's like you're only out for yourself. That's not true. That is not true. I don't know who you're talking to. I don't know who everybody's talking to, but I've been nothing oh, yeah? but good to people. I'm a good friend. I'm a good person. That is who I am, okay? This is me looking out for you, all right? Then why are you talking to the feds? You think that's the kind of person I am, that I would talk to the feds? Oh, I forget you said that. You're going to do what I ask. You're going to get dog catcher for me, all right? I'm not doing shit for you, Barry. Hank? No. Hank. Not anymore. Shut up. Hank, do what I say, because if I fucking get out of here, man, you are... The day you get out of prison is my fucking birthday, man. Okay? Oh, you're a tough guy now? (laughs) Oh, you think you're a tough guy? Is that what it is, Hank? You think you're fucking tough? You're not fucking tough, Hank. You don't know what fucking tough is, motherfucker. You fucked up. Why don't you enjoy hell? You murdering... Fuck you! Self-centered, lying, fucking narcissistic piece of shit. Barry, in that scene, in the courtyard by himself, talking about how much he gives and gives and no one gives him anything. And now this cold splash of water from Hank, your selfish, narcissistic piece of garbage. Enjoy hell. And Barry, of course, interestingly, trying to have Kusanau killed. Now, if he cuts the deal with the FBI, they're probably going to give him witness protection and take him out. So his vendetta against Gene is purely the fact that he's talking. Once again, the idea that no one else has any interiority except for Barry himself. This is pure sociopathic behavior. A couple of real comedic highlights here towards the end of the episode. Watching (laughs) Rain Man, Fuchs has an epiphany. He's the Tom Cruise character and Barry is Rain Man. They need each other. Fuchs makes this big scene. You hear in the background, inmates, Fish Tits is freaking out, <laughs> trying to raise an alarm that someone's going to try to kill Barry. They think he's just trying to create a scene here, drag him away. And then maybe the comedic highlight of this whole entire episode, Barry is meeting with the agents, with the FBI agents. These assassins have arrived, one played by Fred Armisen. And I could not stop laughing. Fred Armisen's Absolutely horrendous poker face here. So hilarious. <laughs> Barry's just like, that guy right there, he's trying to kill me. He's got a weapon or something. That guy's going to try to kill me. He pulls out one of these single fire pen guns. It misfires, blows off his hand. But there's the other gunman, the other podcaster gunman is in the drop ceiling above. Kills everybody else in the room, except for Barry, who is not in his line of sight. Retrieves one of the agent's guns. Kills the other assassin and makes his escape before reinforcements can arrive. And that's the end of the episode. Barry is back out again. And who is he going to visit first? He has bad blood with Gene. He has bad blood with Hank. And he's trying to run off with Sally. And we'll see how all that craziness plays out next week. So I continue to be very curious about this show and how it explores this idea of performance, how these gangsters are actors, how these actors want to be gangsters, and these reversals of fortune. When all of a sudden you have the upper hand, how that changes, the role you play, and now with all these reversals this week, how everybody is now donning another cap. Gene, no longer the storyteller, no longer in control of his narrative, is now freaking out and becoming a different version of himself. Barry, who got to play the nice guy when he was on the outside, wanted to get out of this business, his mindset, the mindset of a ruthless killer once again, and purely selfishly rewriting history, always the victim in this scenario. We've already seen a reversal 
where just in the first episode of this season, just last week, he was suicidal. He was feeling the weight of the crimes he had committed. We also see that once again at the end of last season on that beach with everybody whose life he's destroyed. And now just on a vendetta kick again. When he gets angry, he sees nothing but his own needs and his own affronts, how he's been wronged. In his mind, he's always the one who's been wronged, even as he's killing everybody around him. And amazing to me that they've already gotten him out of prison. And episode three of this eight episode season, we're not even halfway through, and there's a lot of season yet to come. So I had anticipated maybe a confrontation with Sally in the next to last episode. And once again, I had speculated that maybe Sally's the only one who can finally end his reign of murder. But I have to assume he's going to run into her sooner rather than later. So what is the shape of the end of this, of this not only this season, but this series in total? I have no idea. And uh, that's a good thing. Okay, let's move on to my conversation with Sona, where she gives me her feedback on this most recent episode of Succession. All right, Sona, I broke down the episode, plot beat by painful plot beat, <laughs> <laughs> before you joined. But so mostly, I just wanted to ask you some questions. Before I get to some of the specific questions I had, uh, what was your general takeaways from the episode? I loved it. I thought it was really fun to watch, very witty. The setting was beautiful. The plot moved forward quite a bit, laid the groundwork for some interesting stuff to come. Yeah, I love this too. By the way, anybody who's listening to this who usually only listens to the Monday episodes, Sona and I actually discussed in the Wednesday episode when I was actually talking about Barry as well, uh, the top of that episode, we were discussing like the power rankings. And maybe we'll frame this conversation the same way because some of the reversals we had just discussed last week kind of happened right now. <laughs> so it gets interesting to kind of see the ups and downs mm -hmm. week to week. So I have so many questions as to what anybody is doing here intentionally or unintentionally lying about every single <laughs> interaction they have with each other. Like there is not a single interaction in this episode practically that is not a lie or a manipulation on its face. <laughs> Would you say Matson wins the episode? I think he's towards the top, but isn't he potentially completely overpaying for this, don't you think? I think he's potentially overpaying. I think he can afford to do that. Though. Yes. So I don't think um, even if it's a poor business decision, I don't think it will necessarily be a damaging business decision. Maybe it's just my perspective having lived with these other characters for so long and Matson for a comparatively short time. But to me, it feels like he knows exactly what's going on. He knows exactly what he's doing. And this is all a very intentional plan that he has set into place. See, I feel the same way. In my breakdown, I was talking about how I think he is playing every single angle here, but this is what's interesting so. about it. When he's on the mountaintop at the end of the episode, and he has that confrontation with Roman- Which was great. Yes, incredible. An incredible scene. It seems like he is offended at that moment. I feel like with Logan gone, he feels like he is leagues ahead of the rest of yeah. these people. And is having fun playing with them. Yes, I completely agree. And I think a lot of it for him is just the fun of the game, apart from the yeah. business strategy, apart right. from what he really wants. Like, I think he's going to, I think he is having fun putting people on the spot and seeing the deer in headlights look when they don't yeah. know how to respond. Mm -hmm. Right. I think that's entertaining for him. Maybe what happened with him and Roman is at the point that he was like, okay, enough with that. Let's just get this done. Roman right. finally reached his limit. <laughs> and yes. now, you know, he's annoyed that it's not on his terms as much as he thought it was. And that aggravated him. I definitely believe he thinks he's tons smarter than everybody else. Yes. Mm -hmm. Right now, I think he's tons smarter than everybody <laughs> yes, else. I agree. Yep. But I could be wrong. Alexander Sarsgaard. Sarsgaard? Scar I'm not sure if there's a scar scar <laughs> is doing a fantastic job here. I think this mm -hmm. character oh God, is yes. so much fun to watch. So yep. charismatic, even when he's being a jerk, like you still want to see more of him. I just am really entertained by all of it. I will say. Yeah. A couple of things in that regard. First of all, you know, Logan is gone now and it's great to have Skarsgård who they cast last year. They didn't use that much. 
was pretty muted in his performance, but now coming in here as like a, a true alpha again, which the show obviously needs to some extent. So they really get to use him 100%. And, and it's so entertaining. And second of all, like to, to follow up on something you were saying there, exactly that he is replacing Logan as the alpha, right? These guys are not alphas, right? Like he is the mm-hmm. alpha predator and he has arrived and he's going to make mincemeat of them. And maybe that's where he's a little disappointed by the competition at this point. And now he just gets to like play with his food to some extent, because with Logan, he, uh, he probably did want to manipulate the deal and see how much he could squeeze Logan because Logan is a tough customer. Right. And now in this regard, he's probably getting something very different, but he probably just thinks that he can, you know, it, it comes down to that moment at the end where he asks Shiv to snap a picture of them being completely miserable Mm-hmm. And of course, the irony of ironies is that everybody else on that plane is, this is incredible. You mm-hmm. milked the Swede mm-hmm. for every penny. You guys did an incredible job. How he's playing at such a higher level that they think that their company is the most important company in the world in their own minds. <laughs> and meanwhile, this guy's just like, I don't care if I overpay for this. I just want to get that yeah. photograph of them <laughs> yes. so I can like meme it on Twitter. Like that's all he cares about. It, it, it costs him an extra $25 million. Yes. Who cares? $25 billion. What am I talking about? Millions. We're not talking about millions here. Yeah. It definitely to me feels like a cat with a mouse, right? Like just batting it around yes. for a little bit before he goes in for the kill. Right. And uh, I mean, think about it. Even Hugo and all the people who made the kill list at the end, they're still walking away with who knows extra millions of dollars from this whole thing. Yes. No. And the uh, one, oh, I forget his name, Carl. Yeah. I mean, he's the one with the presence of mind to be like, my golden parachute is back in place and bigger it's than even ever. Bigger. <laughs> I could afford the island easily. Yes. <laughs> oh, it's so funny. And it's probably the best thing for all of them, right? To just walk away if they, but if they could, if they possibly could. Yeah. I think it's just that ego of walking away on your own terms, right? Versus having the right. decision made for you. Speaking of ascendancy here, you know, coming from a very low point last week is Shiv. Shiv's in the background, like even physically <laughs> in most of these scenes, but she actually is getting the ear of Matson. And think about it. At the end, she said, when he, and I have to ask you about how real you think this story is that he tells, but when he's, she's basically saying, these are the people you need to manage that issue. You need Carolina, Mm -hmm. you need Jerry. Jerry's really good at that. And think about who survives at the end. Mm -hmm. It's Carolina, it's Jerry, it's Mm -hmm. Shiv, and it's Tom, who did not impress him in any way, other than the fact that Tom is married to Shiv. It's like Mm -hmm. basically, and once again, is that more about him thinking Tom's an asset or this is more for him to play with them? Because if they're both around him in his orbit, he gets to see their toxic dynamic play out. So it might just be more (laughs) entertainment value for him. It's just Shiv related. Everybody else is gone. Everybody else is gone. Right. Except for Greg, who Greg's not on or off the list. I'm sure he'll just keep floating around. <laughs> in the background, <laughs> Under the radar. as usual. Exactly. Just keeps showing up places. By all appearances, Shiv is a winner here. But again, right. maybe I'm giving the character too much credit, but I feel like it's all part of his game. Oh, I agree. I just mean that he, she wins the dynamic between the siblings, which may not matter at all in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. It's all they care about, but it doesn't really matter in the in the world itself. Yeah. I mean, it actually made me a little bit sad that she was in that position because I do think despite edging her out last week, there were a lot of times that they made a point of showing uh, Kendall and Roman trying to keep Shiv involved, asking for her to be brought into the room right. and going to her with their thoughts. And they seem to be trying to keep their promise that she would be involved in everything, even though she wouldn't be in the actual official roles. Sad to me that she got that she was willing to to be a Matson supporter over her brothers by the end of the episode in that way that she did. They don't think Pinky could dance, so they want to cut her out of this whole thing at the end. They have their little plot, their completely transparent plot, by the way, that he sees coming a mile away going, you think you're going to scare me off by telling me that the movie's over budget and, uh, you know, like, he's like, I don't care about this. Like my company is logistically probably more, much more massive than that. And they're still, once again, just thinking about their own backyard and how important it all is, but they are children playing this game. They made this (laughs) ill-conceived plan (laughs) in the tram, right? I think it happened in the tram. No, remember they talked about the night before they have that long conversation. And they didn't include her in that. So that's fair. 
And it did feel though very much like, and you mentioned this already, the dynamics with the father are all just being replicated and displaced, right? right? Because that to me was a very Logan Roy thing to do, to be like, but I'm having fun. I don't want to give it up. I'm not going to do it. I like this power, right? Like, isn't that again, full circle to the beginning of the series where it was all supposed to be given over to Kendall and Logan decided, "Mm, not quite yet. I'm not done. Right? Right. So, and I also thought, by the way, and maybe you mentioned this in your breakdown, the, the callback to Kendall listening to the gangster rap yes. on his way yes. to work was fun. Jay-Z also. is the exact same yes. album, by the way. Yes, so, I called it out. Yeah. <laughs> so many things coming full circle of like them replacing the father and deciding that like they just aren't ready to let go of the power. So why should they? And I guess, you know, the kids, the way they used to plot against the dad, now Shiv is plotting against them in that way. I don't know. Um, It's really sick and twisted, I guess, how we get sucked into certain dynamics in our life and just can't let them go. But um, so, yes. okay. point taken. That is fair. I also want to mention about Shiv, and this is purely a tangent, but they've got to make up their minds. The other week she wasn't drinking. She was trying to cover her stomach. This week her her midsection is out and she's holding a glass and takes a sip from it. Which is it? Well, you know, I, I would say that she plays that correctly. And I did call that out as well. He gives her the cocaine. She fidgets with it. Does yeah, not that do I the saw. cocaine. No, that I and then saw. she and yes. she nurses she nurses the whiskey a little bit. If she took a sip, she barely took a sip. So I think she played that right. But let me talk on. Let's let's speak on but that. But she for does a the bit. champagne on the plane. She good point. Very good point. And she does actually drink at one of the meals as well. You're right. You're right. You aren't going to take a sip of champagne at your brother's wedding, but you'll take yeah, one. Right, you know, right. I, I just. You know, I'm annoyed with this whole plot device to begin (laughs) with. So it just bothered me more. Like yesterday, uh, last week, you had to have your jacket buttoned every second. Now I can see your stomach. Which is it, Shiv? That could also be, well, let's not get, that's that's maybe extra textual, but that could also be that, you know, as they're shooting these shows, she's becoming the actress. I thought of that. More pronounced. Yeah. Yeah. um, uh, It might be harder to fit her into the, I mean, like not to fit her into the wardrobe, but like to style the wardrobe. Like no, her character, yeah. given the circumstances. I have a feeling that towards the end of the show, <laughs> she's going to be much more covered up in general. So, I mean, we still have a whole five episodes. It's pretty amazing. We're only halfway through the season. Um, and so much has already happened. Mm-hmm. The Okay. So let me use that as a starting point to talk about, because uh, we have the same read on this, the manipulations of Matson. right? He asks for some core people to show up. Then in the 11th hour, he says, everybody should show up. Jerry says, and Kendall says, well, should we comply or not? Jerry goes, well, we do want the deal, right? So we should actually play ball. Probably the right thing to do, but to get everybody, he could have made some excuse, like this is less than a day's warning, but then they get everybody on the plane flying over in the 11th hour. They kind of jumped a little too eagerly. And then all the manipulations you say with Madsen, you can almost watch the whole entire show, this episode through that prism of what manipulation is trying each each time. Oh, the first thing I want to call out, by the way, we mentioned, or you mentioned last season, how attractive you find him to be. And obviously he's a really handsome guy, but I mentioned that he was kind of, you know, when we met him, he was a little sullen, very puffy. You know, he was talking about how he hadn't slept in, in, in weeks or something because he's trying some new thing where he doesn't sleep anymore. That's and I right. was like, well, you know, he did a good job of like kind of making him like a little less attractive. And I think very intentionally here, he made that uh, Viking movie in, in the meantime and got pretty jacked up for that role. And I think that he's pretty much maintained that physique. And I think intentionally so. It's like he's very intimidating when you have these actors who are probably five foot five, five foot six. Yes. <laughs> and he's this massive Nordic six foot whatever yes. guy. And I think intentionally to you know express his dominance over them in this negotiation as well. And I think they use that to their to effect. There was a shot with, I think it was Kendall Roman, Tom and Greg, and even Tom and Greg seem so imposing. <laughs> they seem small, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and so yeah, it's uh, compared to Matson, it it just um, translated on a lot of levels that they were out of their league. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So the first thing that I found interesting in that early negotiation, and there's those three main negotiation moments, and we have to throw the Shiv conversation in there too, because that's manipulative too, I think. He has them all go up there. He asks them all to go up on the gondola up to the top of the mountain. And then when he gets there, he's like, hey, you guys brought brought everybody? I'm just here by myself. Like, what an asshole. (laughs) 
Oh my and, gosh. And then of course they like, oh, oh, okay. Like we'll do it our, on our own. And then they, uh, and then of course he says the whole thing, I'll buy your company for one single dollar, just trolling them, but also make like setting this baseline that, oh my God, he's going to go really, really low. And then mm-hmm. he like, it's like the rope of dope. He like goes really, really high. They literally have no response to this because they know going that high makes this deal one that he, they basically cannot reject. Mm-hmm. Kendall initially seems to want to make the deal. And Roman's the one who's dragging his feet. Is that how you read that first negotiation? Yeah. Roman seems very hung up on what the father's intentions were. And honoring those intentions, right? Rather than, is this a good business decision or not? Meanwhile, shit, when they finally tell her, she's just like, fine, sell it. (laughs) It's toxic. (laughs) Well, yeah. And she's just heard about that improper communication, right? Between Mm -hmm, ATN and the uh, candidates committee. So yeah, I think she's just kind of like, if we can get rid of this right now, let's do it because I don't want to deal with the repercussions. And then, of course, they have the negotiation again. He calls him out. He says uh, they start mocking Tom and Greg, talking about whether France will survive or not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he goes, well, we're just passing the time until you come back with a counteroffer. And then, and that's when things go sour, right? Where, what does he say to him? He says, uh, such incredible dialogue in this sequence. He gets angry. Matson in general is very controlled, but Matson actually gets angry and basically says, I don't care what you think. You guys are just a tribute band. You guys are just mm-hmm. a tribute band. <laughs> but then, of course, he does say at the end, like, this is where he, I think he's actually being like a pragmatic, cool-headed businessman. He says, I'm trying to make you rich. And of course, this mm-hmm. is incredible. Kendall says, and this is something you've said a hundred times before, Kendall says, already rich. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you've been circling around in the, our recaps here is the fact that this is all funny money for them, right? If this deal falls apart, if the stock price tanks, they will still be billionaires. And if the, they double that, they'll be multi-billionaires. And it's like, mm-hmm. what does it matter to them? None Where of this does it all... end? Yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> They're rich no matter what. It's like that really has very low consequence, except for these own their own imposed consequences of their egos or their- mm-hmm. the, the story about the legacy of the company or whatever. Like, did, did will people say, and then the sons blew it and ruined it, right? Like, mm-hmm. that's, that's what they're concerned about. The dialogue here was really terrific, the way they're talking over each other and <laughs> yes. making their points and the dismissiveness of Matson. He's just like, you're not on my level. So why am I lowering myself to you? Listen to me. I know what I'm doing. Let's get this done. And if the negotiation is not going to be fun, like from a business perspective, then that's like you said, then all of this just becomes about Matson toying with them. Mm-hmm. Okay. A couple of things happen in that night that I wanted to mention as well. One is when Kendall finally says, you know what, we're going to blow up this deal. But of course, they do not have unilateral blow up the deal control anymore. It's funny because they still feel like they have all this power in this situation when they really don't. They don't have that power Ken, I mean, uh, Logan did not have that power, right? He was not the, the shot caller that he was initially. Then he and his family, when they bring in Stewie and Sandy and the other investors eventually to bail out the company once again, like whatever that was season two or so, they now, the family itself does not have any, way, any longer 50% control of the board. So they really can't just pull the plug on this. And Kendall does something, says something very interesting here. He's saying, okay, let's blow it up. Roman actually wants to do that even from the very beginning, but now he's finally got green light to do so. But he brings up the fact, and of course it's true, that this is really dangerous because we are not the owners of the company. We're we're negotiating with someone who would be the singular owner of the company. We are not that position. We are just these figureheads. Then the board can just go around them because they just have to buy the stock and they can obviously find 50% of the stockholders to take this incredible price. <laughs> It'd be pretty easy to organize that. So they're like, we need to have him walk away mm-hmm. from this without letting the board know that we're the ones who are doing this. It's not just a numbers game of the board. It's that comment Roman makes, if an SEC violation happens in the woods, mm-hmm. does anybody hear it? Because this is a publicly owned company and they have an obligation if there's a good faith deal on the table absolutely, to take it to their shareholders. So regardless of whether they had the numbers or not, 
they still, I think, would have to present it to their shareholders for a vote. I My corporate right. law is very rusty here, but um, I think it's beyond just having the numbers of like who has control of the company. I think it would be right. an SEC violation. And then, yes, I do think it's it's what the show is about, right? The, the lengths that you go to for power and the high that you get from it, right? right. So right. if you can't, there's so many different ways to chase that high. Some people are drug right. addicts, some people are alcoholics, some people are corporate raiders. <laughs> right. um, this is Kendall's new version of it. And I think uh, to me, it was so much... Uh, a parallel to what I could see Logan doing that like there probably is something that feels really good about it and that like he is like his dad right the whole like you're right. not a killer but he right. was I mean he was technically a killer very soon after but <laughs> right. you know um, that like he and you see it with the later line to to Matson to Siobhan like they all want to be like dad I think there's a high that they get off being compared to their dad or doing something their dad would like or admire it's as if that's the the pleasure of it, that this is now fun for him because mm-hmm. there's a risk that they could ruin everything. <laughs> yes. <sighs> okay. In that same night, Siobhan and Matson hang out and we, I kind of, we kind of opened with that, but I want to circle back to it, not only because whether she drinks or not or how she manages that whole situation, but much more importantly, I think, is this whole entire story? It is a very funny story, by the way, that he's like, you know, Crazy we started this joke. story. <laughs> it was... He sent her a block of his frozen blood, (laughs) a lot of it too. And it was not funny at all. But then he kept doing it and then it became funny. (laughs) Then it got got scary again. And anyway, she goes, and then it got funny again. And now he's basically at a place where it's not funny anymore. (laughs) I like that whole idea that because that does happen sometimes, right? This is an extreme example, of course, of a joke that goes from funny to not funny to back to funny again. But this is beyond like when we talk about in the context of the television show, you like that certain behavior <laughs> right. is romantic if you like the person, but stalkerish <laughs> yes. if you don't. I mean, this is I think it's creepy, crazy bananas, regardless of <laughs> right. how you feel about the person. Although we have the Angelina Jolie, Billy Bob yes, situation. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> this is way more than that, though. <laughs> so like sit there, he had to hire somebody to do this for him. <laughs> On a regular schedule. <laughs> Secretly, the biggest laugh out loud line for me in this whole entire thing was Siobhan's reaction to this when he says, well, you know, we could maybe just sweep it all under the rug. And she goes, it's going to be hard to deny it, which she has so much of your blood. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> like that blood has your DNA in it. <laughs> I mean, I was thinking the same thing at the time. <laughs> it never happened. Okay, explain this separate freezer I had to buy to store your biological hazard blood. I had to buy, had to buy a separate appliance for it. <laughs> oh boy! All that, as hysterical as it is, how much of this do you believe is real? Why would you reveal this to Siobhan on the eleventh hour of this purchase going through? That's when I felt like at this moment was he trying to scare her away, or at least feel her out to see like if I tell her this. Will she go tell her brothers? Will she give me bad advice? Will she be shocked and upset? Even if it's true, why reveal this at this moment in this negotiation? It was some sort of tactic to see how far this story goes or, you know, makes it its way back to him somehow or something, because he, to me, is a person that holds his cards very close to the vest. Exactly, exactly. We certainly haven't seen anything to establish a bond between the two of them that he would certainly, that he would feel it appropriate or he would be comfortable sharing something that in my mind would be a pretty personal story. Um, although maybe the whole company knows he's been sending blood. I don't know. Maybe he was <laughs> right. trying to get ahead of it. Eventually you're going to find out I've been sending bricks of blood to this woman. First of all, I think he was entertained to see how Siobhan would take the story, right? right whether right. she would get freaked out or whether she would kind of be able to hang. But then also, yeah, kind of planting a seed for the future. And I think also there was a part there where there's this whole idea. It's was set up pretty cleverly early on where they're talking about it's this chemistry test for the different executives. And that part of this was just to see who fits, who doesn't fit, et cetera. And that he's testing these different folks of Matson 
to see who makes it and doesn't make it. So it's not only to see how Siobhan reacts, but also to see what advice she gives. Those people that she says, these are the three people you need to talk mm-hmm. to. Those are the people. It's just a very simple way. Instead of sitting down and going like, can you give me the performance review for X, Y, and Z? Mm-hmm. The people she says, these are the essential people you need to have. That's it. That tells you everything you need to know. She doesn't need to, he doesn't have to sit down and go through, you know, years of reviews on all these different folks. He knows these are the people he can trust. These are the people that like Logan would turn to. So that's the people he wants. That's as simple as that. Much for more, much more useful advice from Shiv than her previous advice, which was, uh, I think if you raise the number, <laughs> we can get this across the line. <laughs> hey, that's what he does too. He calls her top mind. Thank God you're here. <laughs> <laughs> you mean if I keep upping my price? Yes. <laughs> Eventually they'll sell it to me. <laughs> oh boy. So the final negotiation and then the fallout from there, he loses his cool again and says to them, your dad would be so ashamed of you, you guys playing Scooby-Doo. And then he goes and pisses against the rocks. Speaking of mirroring throughout the season, you have that sequence where they met each other that first night where they're by the urinal Mm -hmm. and they had that whole interaction. And here they are again Mm -hmm. in a very different context. And Roman, great performance here that he almost doesn't say anything. Then you see the tears well up in his eyes and he's like, I got to go say something. And he walks over and he just lays it all on the line. And everything he says is 100% on point. Mm-hmm. And once again, the most emotional of them all, despite always trying to hide it with this comedy and this sarcasm, but everything he says is true, but this is business, man. This is business. And he cannot see this as a business transaction. That's the theme here. They are not good at this. <laughs> true. true. <laughs> What is their plan? How do they make this work? How do they, being the people they are, possibly keep this business afloat? Like they are incapable of doing this and then want the role? Like it's insanity to me, absolute insanity. Is it Dunning-Kruger syndrome, something like that, of people thinking they're better at things than they actually are? Um, Probably largely men, I'm guessing. (laughs) (laughs) Don't know what it's like to be told no. They don't know what it's like to fail because people have protected them from failing. So like it has not occurred to them that they're in over their heads or if it has, they'll never admit it. The scene is amazing with Roman, but you know, he does realize after getting all of this off his chest that he's taken it too far and starts trying to backpedal at the end, right? Of like, you know, if you tell anyone I said this, I'm just going to say it's a negotiating tactic. Maybe it is a negotiating tactic. Maybe it's not. Who knows? Yes, and he just right. walks away, right? Because he realizes like, oh, crap, this was not the time or the place for that confrontation. You know, now it's out there. So what can he do? Okay, it was a negotiating tactic. You know, and they have decided to tank the deal. So in that way, you know, and Kendall says it too, right? Like, well, that's not how I had expected us to get this done, but okay, exactly. it's done. But maybe that works. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Despite their best efforts, it still didn't right. work. But. <laughs> right. That's the other thing I want to talk about is not only that incredible moment on the mountaintop, but then how everything, it's such a an incredible way to almost reread the entire series in the fallout from that interaction, the boys lose. They are miserable. It's almost as if to that point, this was a negotiation tactic. Their goal in coming out there originally, their original goal is we can squeeze the Swede for more Mm -hmm. money. There's more Mm -hmm. money to be had. And then they go out there and they give a better number than anyone could have possibly Mm -hmm. imagined. Everybody's absolutely shocked. The point is they have successfully done what they said they wanted to do, Mm -hmm. supposedly, and they're absolutely miserable because that was never their actual intention. They don't even know what their actual intentions are. It's so bananas. And I think that once again is like it almost becomes the theme of the whole series at that moment. It's incredible. What an incredible reversal here that Madsen is paying way more money and somehow wins. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. so bizarre. Everyone's trying to give them the accolades, right? Saying like, wow, <laughs> yeah. you really did it. You really pulled it out. Amazing. Your dad would be so you. proud of nice you. Nice work. Yes. And just... Mm. Jerry and Frank and Carl are thinking like, oh my God, these kids, we had the deal in place. These kids mm-hmm, have a chance mm-hmm. to blow this all up. And then they come out with the first price and they're like, oh my God, this is this is a great price. Oh my God, these, these loser kids, they're doing it. They're doing it. Yes. And that's, 
And then they're terrified. And that last day, like, you guys, you sure? Are you sure you don't want us to come with you? You sure you got it all? You want to run it by me again? Right. And then they come back down with the new price. And Frank's like, oh my God, this, you, you guys, <laughs> you guys did great. You guys did so great. <laughs> and behind closed doors, it's a train wreck as far as they're concerned. It's, it's, a, it's just the irony of it is so incredible. It's, it, it's the funniest thing on the show, basically. <laughs> <laughs> What did you think about the Shiv and Tom interactions here? They are such children. Everybody, I guess, on the show. Yeah, like grade school when she's stepping on his shoes to scuff them up. And then she fl- he flicks her eye, her uh, ear lobes like they're they're too meaty, <laughs> chewy, <laughs> chewy, too chewy. <laughs> it's so silly the whole interaction. And then, of course, speaking of just how petty they get, she uh, on the plane. Starts teasing him, saying, well, you know, I talked to Madsen and, uh, you know, I have to have a very difficult conversation with you, Tom. And Tom's like, ready to be fired. And she's like, you have to get rid of Sid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's like, uh, okay, I could do that. Done. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And by the way, she wants to have dinner with him when they get back to New York because I think she's going to tell him about the baby. But now this is problematic because if she's just going to be controlling the access he has to the baby or something, now she starts becoming like her mom, this thing that she supposedly you know, despised, right? It's exactly what the mom did with the relationship with the dad. Well, you know, the description she gave to Matson of what happened, you know, I broke his heart and then he broke mine, seemed a little bit more mature than I expected Shiv to be, actually. I also question whether Tom really broke her heart because I'm not sure how much she ever really loved him, but that's my personal view. I don't know why I think this, that maybe she's seeing a possible future for them. I honestly read it that way initially, the same. She's about to have this child. She's committed to that. She needs a father figure around. It was only when I was recapping that I thought maybe there's something more toxic there because I was seeing these scenes next well, to Well, she's other. a toxic person. <laughs> right. But also like the whole petty, you know, uh, trying to step on his sneakers and all that stuff. Like seeing those scenes all together, I'm like, I don't see a trajectory here where she suddenly is the bigger person. Although that it is interesting that that you circle it back to that conversation. It's kind of like a grade school flirting though, maybe. It could be. That's true. That's actually a good point. I mean, that happens a lot, right? Where you're like, getting punched in the arm by the boy on the yeah. playground actually wants to kiss you, not not punch you. Yeah, I don't know. And by the way, we forgot to actually discuss this last week, but we're all assuming the father of the baby is Tom. I just want to say it out oh, loud, yes. right? Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> and not that political analyst guy. Hey, you know what? I actually toyed with that and I forgot to bring it. We should have made it. I explicit. haven't worked out the timeline. We could be 100% wrong on this, but in general, like just the internet chatter is just explicitly that they think it's Tom's child. Gotcha. We could all be wrong about that as well. So it is possible. She could have just had a one night stand at some point. Like we don't know, right? We don't know what her personal life is like. I, I would assume it's just too messy to bring someone else into it at this point. I think it's just going to be about Tom. I agree. And that, you know, because that thematically makes some kind of sense. Does she want to reconcile this marriage? Uh, because it's all about, you know, reconciling the family or that makes more sense than like, there's just some other guy who's. I agree. Yeah, we have five more weeks of show. There's a lot of show left. Do you think that there's somehow the Matson the, the uh, Gojo deal doesn't happen? Like, who would walk away from this at this point? I'm assuming it happens, but then I'm just wondering for the whole idea of the show and succession and who is going to be the successor, where would that leave that plot? You make a really good point there. Yeah. He's made the point that he thinks this is a, a parts situation, right? He's buying right, it for parts, right. not to maintain some aspect of it and its leadership. So then what? Yeah, no, I think you make a really good point there. If this is mm. about succession, yeah, you're right. Then like, you would theoretically assume it's a succession for the company. Right. Matt just <laughs> buys the company and uh, merges it into Guts Gojo. It. Yeah. Yeah. And then just like he says, takes the best parts and like says, oh, I have a cruise line. Maybe I'll sell that to somebody else. I have a movie studio. Maybe I'll set that to someone else. Or actually, he needs the content, so we'll probably keep that. And he's getting ATN, so it's not yeah. like that's going to be a separate thing on its own that merges with Pierce and you know all of that. Yeah, and he's not even vested in ATN. I love that whole description of saying, uh, which leads to that whole first fracture where they're saying, I don't think you know what you're buying, like this very important asset. And he goes, yes. I've watched it. <laughs> Lots of, uh, what does he call small men? Uh, yelling oh, yeah. loudly, lots of thick veins. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and he goes, he, there's limited upside to uh, uh, news for angry old people. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, that is shocking to 
the siblings, the the brothers, because in their minds, like that is like the most important thing in their brand. And he's like, I just want to turn it into like Bloomberg so that I can get yeah. it on every single cable channel around the world. And I just run headlines on it and it's super cheap and it generates money. That's all I care about. Maybe it could be about the leadership of Pierce. I, I don't know. Yeah, bringing Pierce into it is very strange. I like, by the way, how they want to like merge Pierce <laughs> with ATN now. That was their yeah. new plan. <laughs> it makes no sense. <laughs> yes. Like MSNBC and Fox. I'm, I'm like, what? I, I don't know how that works. Yeah. <laughs> Just another bad idea. I have many bad ideas for these guys. <laughs> Theoretically, what you could do is you could own both channels and basically keep the brand going, right? Where one's left wing, one's right wing, and you create news for each other because you basically have two competing teams. But even yeah. that would seem tedious after a while. Yeah. Anything else? Greg and his cluelessness trying to insert himself into the family. Oh, also All the quad that. squad and the quad squad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. More hapless than ever. There was also the side plot of Connor being left to deal with the funeral oh my services God, yes. mm -hmm. yes. and, and the kilt. <laughs> yes. It's fine, Connor. Send pictures. Don't send pictures. And then he sends a picture. <laughs> so. right. uh, yeah. And we will know more next week. All right, Sana, I'll let you go. And we will touch base again on Friday to discuss Yellow Jackets. Sounds good. Four more episodes of Yellow Jackets. A little bit shorter that season than this one. So four more. All right. Thanks for the conversation. You too. Talk to you later. All right. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.